Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to James, the book of James, near the end of your Bible in chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I have on the screen a quote from a, a Jewish philosopher who is by no means a Christian, who remarked this. He said, I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another, such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Spinoza is hinting that Christians claim to be people of love, claim to be people of peace and patience, and yet when you examine the internal life of the church, he would make the case that what he sees is bitter hatred, the exact opposite. We've been in a series called Gospel Realization, and today will be the last sermon in that before we jump into some Advent sermons next week. And what we've been looking at is that the gospel itself And all the implications that come out of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, those realities need to come and take root in our hearts. They need to become real. They cannot just be a set of doctrines that are minds and we can answer a right test, a true fault, a multiple choice test, that we get the gospel right. No, the gospel must actually become deep real in our lives. And I would say that one of the primary ways we know as a church that the gospel has actually become real is the way that you and I relate to each other. If we are a church like Spinoza, that we claim to be gospel people, and yet there is such bitter hatred and animosity among us, the gospel is not real, no matter how sound our doctrine is. And one of the most difficult things in all of life is to manage relationships. How many of you find it easy to just deal with all the relationships in your life? And the quality of your life is determined by the quality of relationships. And so if you like superficial relationships, you actually have a superficial quality of life. 
And we were made in the very beginning to be in right relationship with God, ourselves, and others, and the world around us. And the brokenness of the curse is that now all of those have been fractured. And the relationships that we all deeply want and deeply long for are so hard to get. And the very thing we want the most, those deep, intimate relationships, because of sin, we work so hard not to have them. This morning, I want to talk to us about the gospel and relationships. How do you handle conflict? How do you deal with differences among your family? And when I say family, not just your immediate family, but this RC family. My deep desire is that the story of the good news that in Jesus, God is making all things new, will continue to become such a reality in our hearts that that is what changes us. We are not after change for change's sake. I don't really care if you become a nicer person because it makes you feel better about yourself. I don't really care if we change out of sake of moralism. I want the gospel of Jesus Christ to sink so deep into our hearts that it actually makes us what we claim to be, a people of love and peace and joy and patience. And so we need to continue to identify and examine the deep motivational structures of our hearts. I know we don't like to do this. But you have to continue to do business with what your heart is longing for, the desires that it has, and what those desires are producing in your life. Your heart is always seeking something to find rescue in. You are always worshiping someone or something to give you meaning. This is what sin does to us. It creates a void in the sense that we no longer know who we are. We don't have this right relationship with God, ourselves, and others in the world. And so we have to make up something to give us meaning and value. And whatever that is directs your life. It determines how you spend your time, where you spend your money. And so I feel like every week we're asking you to deal with what are the deep motivational structures of your heart. Because the book of James in chapter 4 is going to say some very powerful things about the structures of your heart when it comes to relationships. James chapter 4 says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Stop. If you're honest with yourself, it's the other people, the other idiots, the other people who don't know and have the enlightened way of life that I do. But James says something far different that you probably are familiar with, but he says this, don't they come from where? Your desires, that battle inside of you. And so you desire something, but you can't get it, so you will actually kill to get it. Your desires, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. And you don't have because you don't ask God. I, used to, I don't do this very much anymore, but my kids would always be like, I'm hungry. I'm like, that's neat. I want to go to my friend's house. Oh, okay, great. That's a good idea. I'd always make them ask. 
You want food? Okay, then ask me. Because God says you don't have because you don't ask. But then there's more than that. When they do ask, they ask with the wrong motives, the wrong desires. Why? So that what they actually get from God can be used to satisfy their evil desires. Spirit, we need you to come and make this passage real in our hearts. We need you to come and to do work on our own individual hearts so that collectively our heart together here will not be one that produces fights and quarrels. So we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. What causes fights and quarrels in your marriage? What causes fights and quarrels in your parenting? What causes fights and quarrels in your job, in your missional community? I think James is very clear is that your un your unfulfilled desires are the main problem. These desires that he's talking about are not the desires of righteousness, peace, and joy. He's talking about evil desires. It is, and I want to just be very clear, because this is a whole other sermon. To have desire is to be human. It is good to have desires, and to have those desires met in God and his people and his spirits. But that is not what James is talking about here. He's talking about the evil desires. We could say that the evil desires we looked at a few weeks ago of control and comfort and approval and power. The main issue is your unfulfilled desires. And when those desires are not met, that is when fights and quarrels break out. So you use your boss, you, you know, you may not think of it this way, but you really do. You use your spouse, you use your kids to get your desires of your heart met. And when they fail you, when your desires are not met, you begin to get angry. You blame other people for your problems. You begin to feel resentment and bitterness towards these people. And all of this only creates a greater divide in the relationship between all of those people. And we need to come and do business with the fact that this, your spouse is not the main problem. Your unfulfilled desires are. Your boss is not your main problem. Your evil desires are. Your child is not the main problem. Your unfulfilled evil desires are. Your unfulfilled desires are the sinful desires that are waging war in your soul. And they produce all of your arguments, all of your fights, and all of your quarrels. Situations, people, and actions rarely, if ever, create new things in your heart. They actually reveal what is already at work in your heart. You ever get a new job and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know I had a control problem. Must be my job's problem. No, you had a control problem the whole time and the job brought it out. You didn't think you were selfish and then you got married and you thought you were a little bit selfish and you had 48 kids and you realized, I am wicked selfish. Who's the problem? It's not your kids, it's you. Your spouse does not create or cause the anger in your soul. You cannot say, you cannot say that if my spouse would act this way, I wouldn't be angry. You cannot say if your boss did not do this or do this decision, I would not be bitter in my soul. You cannot create or cause or put any blame on your child for despondency. 
because all they are doing is revealing what is already at work in your hearts. So we could say that circumstances are revealing who you really are. Circumstances are, are depicting and giving you an insight, a clue into your hearts. But deep down, we all want the problem to be the spouse, to be the boss, to be the child. If they would all act in a different way, if they would all think better, or they'd all change the way they do blank. No, all of those things simply reveal what those evil, unfulfilled desires are in your heart, and they create division in relationships. They create anger. They create the fighting and the quarreling. But note this too, that James says that there is actually a battle going on. There is a war going on. He actually uses a military term that says, don't they come from desires that, and it's actually the Greek word that we get our English word strategy from. There's a internal war going on in your heart. This is why you rage. This is why fights and quarrels erupt into warlike situations. It's because there is a deep battle in your heart. Peter picks up on this and he says, I urge you as sojourners and, and as exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which are waging war against your soul. Do you feel that war or do you just give into it? Do you feel that internal deep anger and resentment and bitterness that is just welling up and growing all because of your unfulfilled desires and it eventually erupts like a tank, and you begin to blow everyone up in your way. In fact, James says, you want something so bad you can't get it, you're willing to kill. Now, whether or not James was actually saying the early church was literally murdering each other, which could be a possibility, or James has Jesus's quote, if you hate your brother and sister, you're guilty of murder. There are strong feelings of hate and resentment going on. And I want to ask a question. Do you really hate someone? Is there someone in your mind when I say I hate that person, boom, that pops right up? Whether or not you want to admit it, your hate and deep despisal for other people actually says a lot more about your heart than it does about them. What does it say about you? It says your heart is so bitter, so angry, because you could not get your evil desires filled. It is the epitome of a selfish heart. This person did not live up to your wishes. They didn't live up to their desires. I married this person. They did not ever come true. They were never Prince Charming. I don't know how I thought they were for the first six months I dated them. They fail you. They deeply hurt you. But all of that hatred reveals more about your own heart than other people. And this is always, this is where it even gets a little bit more damning for us. It's always a hypocritical, self-righteous hatred. You claim to follow Jesus, and yet you never, not even for one day, can live up to his desires, his wishes for you, obey his commands. And yet, does he hate you? 
does he hate you? And the number of times that you disobey, the number of times that you don't live up to his desires, the number of times you don't live up to his wishes. I mean, just think what God legitimately could feel about you. But we don't think about that. What we think about is just how much that person has hurt me. And that internal rage and that bitterness comes and erupts into fights and quarrels. And all the time, it is not that person who's at fault. It is you. It is your unfulfilled desires that refuse to do business with the forgiveness that's been granted to you in the person of Jesus. If there ever was anyone who could rightly hate others because of how he has been treated, it is Jesus. And yet he loves you. He pursues you. He forgave you before you even ask for your forgiveness. And I think Spinoza is right. The height of hypocrisy occurs when you claim his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness and never extend these virtues to people who have hurt you so much because you are so selfish. This is why Jesus can say, if you don't forgive others, he won't forgive you. It's not, a, it's not a matter of works, like i got to forgive someone. So, No, it is a matter of a heart that if you don't understand that forgiveness has been granted to you in Jesus, you will never forgive other people unless that forgiveness serves you. Like, oftentimes we forgive other people, but it's really just a serving of ourselves. Rather than taking on the cost, the absorbing of the pain and the hurt, that's what it means to forgive someone. When Jesus forgave us, he had to absorb all of the evil, didn't he? And when you forgive other people, you have to absorb that evil or there's no real forgiveness. And so when you forgive people, are you really absorbing the evil? I understand, because I'm a human, that forgiveness is not a light switch. Does that make sense? Someone hurts you really bad, you don't just flip a switch and be like, oh, Jesus is great, everything's great, I love you. Like, there's things we've got to work through, there's pain, there's emotion that has to be dealt with, and all those things. But there should be a starting point that says, I am going to forgive you and work towards that. Not, if you live up to me and you change your way of life, I'll truly forgive you. See, the reality is that James is coming here in James chapter 4. I think he's very clear that the root of all of your issues is your evil heart. So stop blaming everybody else. And first, deal with your own heart. Deal with your own evil desires. Let me give you a little pro tip. I actually learned this, or I didn't learn it. I was reminded of this from a friend, um, actually Brad, who reminded me of this a few months ago when I was with him in May, in, May in, in Texas. Do you ever think about future possibilities and seek to prepare your heart right now to deal with the evil, your desires that are going to be threatened in the future? What do I mean? Dads, when you're on your way home from work, are you in the car thinking about future when you get into that house, how are you going to handle it when your kids interrupt you? Are you thinking about well, how are you going to treat your wife? Or do you just show up into the house a blank slate and things happen to you and then you just go crazy? 
Like, do you think ahead of time? And not just think about how you're going to handle it, but then begin to think, okay, I know when I get home, I guarantee it, my kids are going to annoy me. They're going to be, I'm going to make me become impatient, and I'm not going to want to help them and serve them. Any dad been there before? And a pro tip is like on your way home in your work, begin to meditate on the patience of God for you in the person of Jesus. Think of how patient and kind he is to you. And ask the Spirit when you get home with those kids to exemplify and to radiate the patience that you have just rejoiced in to those children. Do you wives ever think about how you respond when your husband comes home and hurts you? Do you think about how you react when people judge you? Like, if someone is just going to come up and judge you right now for the thing that you most hold dear to your heart, have you thought how you're going to deal with that person? So I think part of making the gospel real is not just living in the moment, but it's having our hearts and our minds continually being thinking about how are we going to handle situations that come into our life. And it's very interesting that when you are right with yourself, when the gospel is sinking deep into your hearts, how you are free from guilt and rage and shame and blaming others. It's, it's so crazy, like when my heart is rejoicing in the patience of God, how easy it is to be patient with my family. Like there is a marked difference when you're right with yourselves and you recognize the sinful desires of your own heart. Your conflicts look way different. We're humans. There's going to continually be conflict. There's going to be continual stuff that goes on that revolves around our unfulfilled desires. But when the gospel becomes real, those conflicts look way different. The rage is gone. The anger is gone. The blaming is gone. Everyone taking responsibility for their own evil, unfulfilled desires and repenting and forgiving and serving each other and now working out of that context, relationships can genuinely be formed. Arguments, disagreements can be handled with love, grace, patience. And the way through the conflict, because we're not trying to avoid conflict, It's there. The way through it is by having the gospel sink deep into our hearts. How you deal with these unfulfilled desires reveals where your heart really is and what you truly value. When your unfulfilled desires are not the gospel, Jesus, as Paul says, is not your life. Your life is bound up in what you want in your evil desires, but when the gospel is your life, you're free. But it's not just James who had to deal with this problem, but Paul has to deal with this problem. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has a, a conversation for the church at Corinth that says this, if any of you has a dispute with another, Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Don't you know that we're going to judge angels? How much more the things of this life? 
Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, brothers take one another to the court, and this in front of unbelievers. Paul was, I mean, Paul begins this whole, argue, this whole section of 1 Corinthians 6 with the word, I can't believe it. I am like in awe of the fact that you're taking each other to court. Okay, so in James, there's like just this minor conflict. Quarrels going on. Paul says in Corinth, these quarrels, these arguments, these divisions actually were coming to a place where they were going to, you know, the city of Corinth and Corinth rulership and Corinth governments to determine cases for them. And I'm not going to go into like all the court system stuff today and what you should do. Like that's a whole nother wisdom issue. But what I want to do is just see that here are again a church having quarrels and fights and disagreements over money and property and lands. I mean, it's just encouraging again to know that the church in Jerusalem and the church at Corinth didn't like each other, didn't get along with each other, wanted to kill each other. Like, the sooner you just admit all of that, the healthier we'll become as a church faster that they had struggled with the same things that we struggle with. And Paul is like, why are you doing this? Why are you at such odds with each other that you can't even handle your own business? Paul makes an argument, what I'm going to say, he's going from the greater to the lesser. Do you see those two phrases in there? You're going to judge the world and you're going to judge the angels? And yet now you can't even judge whether or not someone owes someone a hundred bucks? The, the greater is that one day you are going to actually rule the world with God. You're going to actually rule over the principalities and the powers and all of the angelic creatures that God has created. And we're going to have ownership and authority and rulership under Jesus, with Jesus, over his world. And he's making the case, if that is really your future, why can't you just make a trivial answer? Why can't you just make a decision? Why can't you just come before the elders of the church and the church hear the case and everyone kind of pray and figure out what to do? Two things with that. Do you know the answer to why they couldn't do that? Hold on to that. Because I'm going to answer that in the next verse. I didn't put it up there on purpose. But secondly, Paul wants them to get a perspective on what is really important. You know what we think is of ultimate importance? The things going on in our life right now. Our money, our time, our schedule, our this, our that, everything about us, and we just get this myopic life that everything that is so important is right here, right now. I've got to deal over it. And Paul says, get your eyes off of the stupid little things. And look to the future. The future is absolutely certain, and you're going to rule the world, and you're worried about whether or not you're going to get fair treatment in a court of law? Like, for real, church, get your eyes off of yourself. 
and begin to look at what is actually true, what is actually going to happen to all of God's people. You're going to rule the world. So stop trying to rule your dumb house and your job and the places you go. See, we get things backwards. Things that are really important, we think are minimal, and we'll worry about those later. And, and Paul is like, no, 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 no. These things are important. The certainty of the future coming into the present right now, you already are reigning and ruling with Jesus as if it is the future. So number one, get your priorities right. Start thinking about what is actually ultimate, what is not penultimate. My daughter was watching a show the other day, and someone used the word penultimate, and she's like, whoever uses the word penultimate? And I'm like, what does penultimate mean? Ultimate is like the most important things. Penultimate are the things underneath that. And we think like all these things in our life are like ultimate, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're right, your responsibilities, your land, your money, those are all penultimate, not ultimate. When you take your brothers and sisters to court, Paul is saying, you forget about who you are, what your certain future holds for you. When you're getting angry and fighting with your brothers and sisters over land or property or whatever, you're taking them to court, you are failing to take hold of the eternal life that is yours in Jesus in the present, that the things of this world and its desires, which Jesus, John says, are passing away, are the things that are priority and the things that we live for. And God says, congratulations, live for them, but they're dying and they're going away, and if you live for them, you'll die and go away with them. So number one, Paul says, get your eyes to what's real. But I also ask the question, why is it so hard for these people to get along? Why do they have to go all the way to the courts? Verse 7. I, I, I read this verse again like several months ago. I cannot get it out of my head. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you, Paul says in verse 7, means that you've already lost. Okay, if you know anything about me, losing is the worst thing in life. The worst. Okay? And Paul says here, you've already lost. When you take your brothers and sisters to court, and he says, why not rather be wronged, and why not rather be cheated? Time out. That is not, that is so un-American. That is, that, is not, that is not how I want to live my life. No one's going to cheat me out of anything. No one's going to take advantage of me. No one's going to like steal money from me and not have my wrath come on them. And Paul's like, you know why you have to go to the court? Because you're so afraid that you're going to be cheated. That you have to have some secular people who are scorning your way of life, who have nothing to do with Jesus, determine it for you so that you will get all that you deserve. All you deserve is hell and separation from God for all of eternity. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
That is, okay, like, I know I'm going to preach on this, and you might think about it for 10 minutes, but, like, this goes deep into our souls. Uh, This has, like, interweaving webs. It goes places you don't want it to go because it's going to mess with your evil desires. The things that you really think you can hold on to to give you meaning and security, that's going to go in there and mess with things. Can you imagine a whole group of people who are like, you know what, I don't care if I'm cheated. I don't care if I'm wronged. I don't care if that person takes advantage of me. I don't care if that person comes and steals again from me. I don't care if that person comes and lies to my face again. Can you imagine having a context of a heart that says, you know what, I'm going to be taken advantage of and I'm okay with it. That does not go well in your heart. And Paul says, why not rather be taken advantage of? Because when you don't live in light of being cheated and rather not being wronged, you're living for things that are passing away. Why did Paul say you've already lost? Because you've lost two ways. Number one, in any instance of litigation or taking people to court, your goal is to achieve a personal victory. It is a victory for yourself. And the church, we, we, we create this facade that we're not individuals, but we're a family. And as soon as you take someone to court, you've lost because you've lost the very identity of what it means to be a family. You've lost the identity of what it means to be unified together around Jesus because your personal desires and your personal gain and your personal wealth take priority over everyone else in the family. And Paul says you've already lost because the church is already being split. It's already being divided because you want to take people to court because you don't want to be cheated. You've already lost. But you've lost another way. You've lost the integrity of the witness of Jesus Christ in the community in which you live. Paul didn't care about a bunch of people just living nicely together to be a nice little commune of people who would get along. No, he's like, all of this is for the sake of the witness of Jesus in Corinth. And if we're displaying and supposed to be exemplifying the body of Christ, the unity of the church, when you go to court, that's gone. The integrity of the witness of the church is gone. I had a little conversation partner with Paul this week. You can put you, but I put me. It says, Paul, you don't know what they've done to me. And Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Paul says, you say to Paul, Paul, you don't know how much they owe me. And Paul would say to you, why rather not be cheated? You can say to Paul, you're starting to really get me angry right now. And Paul would say to you, why not believe that one day God is going to make everything right and live into that certain future in the present? Then I got a little angry and wrote, get over yourself. Talking to myself, by the way. I'm not that important. I'm not that big of a deal. 
to get over yourself that your needs, my needs, my revenge, your revenge, your hurt, my hurt are not ultimate. The glory of Jesus and his kingdom are. How do you actually live into that certain future right now in the present so that the integrity of the witness of the church of love and unity actually are realized? It is as the gospel of Jesus comes sinking deep into our souls that we've experienced his forgiveness, his grace, his patience, his kindness, his love. And when all of that becomes real in our hearts, we begin to exhibit that to other people. And we have won. We've won rather than have already lost. See, the gospel in relationships has a very ultimate sense that this is how we learn to live together. And if we don't live this way, and we don't seek the gospel, we're going to be like Corinth, a church that is already lost. So God, help us to examine the desires of our heart And allow the good news of Jesus to push out those unfulfilled evil desires with the desires of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because this and these are the virtues of the kingdom. In our quarrels, help us to confess quickly of our own evil desires not being met. In our rage, about not getting our own way. May we see that Jesus didn't get his own way so that we would get the way that we really want and that is the way of life and love. God, I would pray against the tactics and the devices of the evil one who wants these evil desires to rule so that fighting and quarrels take place, so that unity is lost. But Spirit, we pray that your power will take the good news of Jesus and make us citizens worthy of the kingdom of God to exemplify together patience and love and forgiveness so that we might be a people that are light in Advent, that are light in the darkness. And so give us humility. Help us be aware of who you've made us to be too. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.